We begin this module studying Van Til's theology, looking at Christology, redemptive history, and hermeneutics. And as far as I'm aware, there has been no sustained attention given to the Christology of Cornelius Van Til and the way that he engaged with modernist alternatives to Christology with a view toward understanding some of his hermeneutical presuppositions. So this course is organically and progressively related to the previous courses we've taught, but the focus is now shifting and we're going to apply the insights that Van Til's given us on the creator-creature distinction, the doctrine of the Trinity, image of God, covenant of works, now to the person of Christ as incarnate, to his identity in redemptive history, both his pre- and post-existence, we'll define those terms, and then talk a little bit from my credo about his hermeneutical commitment to the centrality of Christ in all of Scripture given the fall, beginning in Genesis 3. So as we begin this module, we're going to talk about Van Til's doctrine of the person of Christ, and I'll be expanding on some of the material from the previous module where we talked about the person and work of Christ from the defense of the faith. We're going to narrow it down now and talk about Van Til on the incarnation, Van Til's doctrine of the incarnation. And what I want to do is map out three basic propositions that forge Van Til's doctrine of the incarnation, particularly from defense of the faith. And then I want to expand those points by recourse to Reformed theologians who have spoken on this, particularly Voss and Turretin. And I'll explain why those two as we move forward. The first proposition that Van Til affirms about the incarnation, I'm going to give you the summary and then develop it, is the redemptive necessity of the incarnation. Not a creational necessity, but a redemptive necessity. Van Til affirmed the redemptive necessity of the incarnation given Adam's sin. But he did not affirm the absolute necessity of the incarnation given creation. In Van Til's view, the incarnation has an entirely redemptive logic in redemptive history. It's not needed either to enable or to perfect God's relation to Adam prior to the fall. Now, this is huge, and we'll spend more time developing it, but Van Til affirmed the redemptive necessity of the incarnation. Secondly, Van Til affirmed the immutability of the eternal person of the Son of God in the event of the hypostatic union. You could call it personal immutability. I have on the board here immutable personhood. Van Til, as we've seen numerous times in previous courses, argues vigorously, and we'll show this, that the divine person of the Son does not undergo change in the event of the incarnation. As we will see parallel, I'll call it mirror logic to the new relation of creation, the re in the hypostatic union, the relation changes, the creature assumed into the relation changes, 
But the eternal person of the Son, Simpliciter, remains ase, immutable and absolute in the hypostatic union. And so Van Til's going to affirm, uh, following Voss and following the teaching of Scripture, the immutable personhood of the Son in the Incarnation. Third basic proposition. And as a function of this affirmation of immutable personhood, Van Til insisted that the eternal and the temporal, the immutable and the mutable, the creator and the creature are not at any point commingled in the hypostatic union. In Van Til's language, the eternal and the immutable remains prior to and independent of the temporal and the mutable. To put it differently, there is no fusing or mixing of the eternal immutable creator on the one hand with the temporal mutable creature on the other hand in the personalizing hypostatic union. This is foundational to everything that Van Til holds dear. And in terms of these three basic propositions, everything else follows. Whether you're talking about the doctrine of the um, extra Calvinisticum, which we're not going to treat in this particular module, the doctrine of the communicatio idiomatum, which we're not going to really develop, but I will mention in this module. These provide the guardrails to avoid error on all sides. Now, what I want to do in this lecture then is amplify these points beyond Van Til, since there is so much confusion of late on the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ, even among those who ostensibly seek to follow Van Til's theology and Van Til's Christology. So let's start by talking now about the redemptive necessity. And this is something that must be affirmed and is very important for Van Til himself. And then I'll, I'll develop and amplify it. Van Til says, in defense of the faith, that the incarnation was necessary, quote, in order to bring men back to God. Now just pause for a moment and reflect on that. We've covered this quotation in the previous lecture on method. You can pause and go listen to that. But reflect on that and listen to the way he amplifies. He says, quote, since sin has come into the world, we cannot see the whole of the picture of reality from the Christian point of view until we see how God and man are brought together after their separation. Reconciliation is possible only if God brings about salvation for man and therewith reunion with himself. Christ came to bring man back to God. What we need to grasp here before expanding on it in light of the Reformed tradition on which Van Til is dependent and which he is affirming, is that the Incarnation was not necessary apart from the Fall. While he affirms 
and the Reformed tradition generally has affirmed that the Incarnation was decreed from before the foundation of the world, he also holds to the fact that its necessity lies in the accomplishment of redemption. Let me put it tersely and give you a formula by which you can understand this proposition of the redemptive necessity and then develop it. The incarnation is not needed to relate the creator to the creature, but the redeemer to the redeemed. Once you understand that logic, a whole host of errors ranging from neo-orthodoxy to recent forms of biblicist mutualism can be put in proper perspective, can be rejected, and we affirm the redemptive necessity of the Incarnation. Now, Van Til follows the classical Reformed tradition represented by Francis Turretin and Gerhardus Voss, among others, regarding the redemptive necessity of the Incarnation. Now, I'm going to deal with Turretin and Voss for at least two reasons. First, Danny Olinger has unearthed the fact that Voss's Reformed dogmatics is dependent, at least in its organization and in many places in terms of theological conclusion, on Turretin's Institutes of Elenctic Theology. Danny has, uh, Reverend Olinger has demonstrated this and I think maybe publishing on it sometime in the future. Second, Van Til spent a lot of time in Voss's classes and most likely had Voss's Reformed Dogmatics in lecture form so that the influence of Turretin mediated through Voss shaped Van Til in a number of ways. Shaped him on the doctrine of the Trinity, shaped him on the doctrine of the creator-creature relation, shaped him on the doctrine of the image of God, shaped him on the doctrine of covenantal condescension, and shaped him on the view that he held of the incarnation of the Son of God, particularly here, its redemptive necessity. So let's consider Turretin's amplification of this point that Van Til affirms. And we need to spend some time on this. And let me say this by way of a preface. We need to understand these points as crisply and clearly as we are able because they are of profound theological significance, as you will see. So first, Turretin addresses the necessity of the incarnation in his first proposition in volume two on the person of Christ. And he says this, first, the incarnation was not necessary except on account of sin. This is now uh, Turretin in the Institutes to topic 13 uh, uh, and um, page 299 of the Institutes. Definitely something uh, uh, worth buying and being aware of. Now let me amplify this so that we can grasp the logic of what is being said. And this requires, especially as you're developing through these modules, you need to spend time understanding this point. It's vital. It's a critical one. To amplify this statement from Turretin, the incarnation was not necessary to initiate the creator-creature relation. And so 
the creator-creature relation itself, creator-creature, is not, the incarnation is not needed to achieve that relation, to initiate that relation. God does not assume a human nature or human properties in order to relate to man. The creator-creature relation obtains entirely without reference to the dynamic of incarnation. It's not in any sense necessary in order for the living and immutable triune God to relate to creatures. Second point, the incarnation was not necessary to consummate the relation between God and Adam under the covenant of works. If the relation can be entered without incarnation, then it can be consummated without incarnation. That's the logic. Since there's no need for the incarnation to enable the relation, there is no need for the incarnation to perfect the relation between the creator and creature. So when I mark this out, it's not that I'm denying the creator-creature distinction on the board here. It's that this creator-creature distinction in no sense requires the incarnation prior to the fall. Of course, the incarnation is ordained. That's not ever in dispute. It's predestined before the foundation of the world, but it is not necessary to enable or perfect the original creator-creature relation. Turton says instead, it was necessary on account of sin. Let me put it this way to be positive now. The incarnation is a remedial and redemptive means to a forfeited creational and covenantal end. The incarnation does not address the creator-creature relation in the estate of innocency, but the redeemer-redeemed relation in the estate of sin and misery. So the internal logic of the incarnation is redemptive, restorative, consummative of that very good relation Adam had to God before the fall, but forfeited on account of sin. To posit the necessity of the incarnation for God to relate to Adam prior to the fall would assume a defect in that relation. And so this is our, our first foray into amplifying Van Til's point. Secondly, in amplifying this, Turton says, quote, as the Son of God became incarnate only on account of sin, so it would not have been necessary for him to become incarnate if man had not sinned. This is opposed to the old scholastics who rashly and without scripture authority asserted, as Alexander of Hales, Occam, Bonaventure, and others. Osiander, a Lutheran, in a former century, interpolated their error. In recent times, the Socinians renew the same for no other object to seek from it some support for their most pestilent heresy concerning the metaphorical redemption of Christ and the improper satisfaction. That's volume two, now 299 to 300. So what is Turretin saying in this quote? Please hear this. 
Turretin notes that the necessity of the incarnation to either enable or perfect the original relation of creation apart from sin derives from medieval speculation and from Socinian heresy, not to mention Osiander. And so any view, according to Turretin, and this is the, the, the mainstream Reformed view that, that Van Til is following from Turretin, that Voss, Bavink, and others affirm, is that if you affirm the absolute necessity of the Incarnation to enable or perfect the creator-creature relation, you are either swimming in a medieval or Socinian stream, likely both. See, the biblical teaching, he argues, will not sustain such a speculative construction for two main reasons. First, God, this will sound familiar from previous modules, God as God relates to man as man before the fall from himself, from his living and immutable power as God. There's no third thing needed in order to relate the creator to the creature. God does not need to generate additional creaturely attributes that he does not have so that he might relate to man. Westminster Confession 2.1, just along these lines, Westminster Confession 2.1 makes this statement. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. Creation ex nihilo comes directly by the will, the word, or breath of God. A. A. Hodge in his commentary, 116. God created all things in the absolute beginning immediately. That means he did not first generate creaturely properties that are needed in order to relate to the creature. He creates by his own will and needs nothing beside himself or in addition to himself to relate to the creature. So there is no need for a third thing. There's no need for an incarnation to enable that relation. Second, and this is a critical point, the relation between God and man before the fall is not defective in any sense and therefore does not stand in need of supplementation. Let me put this in language from previous courses. Before the fall, there's no need for a donum superadditum by which Adam would be reproportioned to God, by which that initially defective relation could be perfected by grace. There's no need for a Christ event to reconcile God to Adam, or every man, as you find in Bart. Both traditional Roman Catholic and modern Bardian theology posit some defect in God's relation to Adam that needs grace. And especially in traditional modernist Bardian theology, 
I guess I should drop traditional because it doesn't really have an antecedent traditional tradition. In modernist Bardian constructions that depart from classical theology, the grace of Jesus Christ is necessary in order to relate God to man. So if you, do, if you affirm the redemptive necessity of the incarnation, that incarnation is needed given fall, you set yourself over against the Bardian view that that, that incarnation is needed in order to relate the Creator to the creature. Now let me offer some biblical lines of argument for this. Turretin, now on page 300, argues that the redemptive necessity of the incarnation can be proved in the following ways. First, from Scripture. He says, our reasons are, one, no other end of the advent of Christ and of his incarnation is ever proposed, whether in the Old or New Testament, that he might save his people from their sin. If he is promised, it is only after the fall, Genesis 3.15, and to bruise the head of the serpent. If he is shadowed forth, it is by sacrifices appointed for the expiation of the sins of men. This the angel clearly confirms in the New Testament, Matthew 1.21, as do Zechariah, Luke 1.67, Simeon, Luke 2.30-34, John the Baptist, John 1.29, and Christ himself, Matthew 9.13, the Apostle Paul, Galatians 4, and John, 1 John 2.1. End of quote. Now let me offer ex uh, just a bit of commentary on this point, since it's the point shared by Voss, Gaffin, and Klein, along with Van Til. From the standpoint of the promise of the coming of Christ in the Scriptures, Genesis 3.15 is set quite clearly in a redemptive context. The reason for the sending of the second Adam is the sin of the first Adam. Second Adam comes not only to do the work the first Adam failed to do, but to reconcile a sinful people to God. Genesis 3.15 firmly locates the biblical logic of the incarnate, crucified, and glorified last Adam in the reality of addressing Adam's sin, the bruising of the head of the serpent. And he shadowed forth as the one who expiates sin, propitiates wrath, and reconciles a sinful people to God. And from the standpoint of the New Testament, Turretin says the angels, Zechariah, John the Baptist, Jesus, John, all present Jesus coming in the flesh as the coming of the Redeemer to ransom the redeemed. Matthew 1.21 says that the name of Jesus is rooted in the fact that He will save His people from their sins. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul, 
Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 1 John 3, 8 says flatly, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, all of these texts make plain that the biblical rationale for the advent of the Son, clothed in flesh, lies in his redemptive work. So I'll state it one more time. Become a leitmotif. The necessity of the incarnation does not lie in relating the Creator to the creature or perfecting that relation apart from sin. The reason for the incarnation lies in securing redemption. It's a redemptive necessity. Turretin continues. Now, page uh, still 300, he says, from his office, quote, which has respect to sinners only. His office is occupied only with sinners, Turton says. As a prophet, he teaches sinners and calls them to faith and repentance, Isaiah 61.1. As a priest, he gives himself as a ransom for sins, 1 Timothy 2.6, Isaiah 53.10. And prays for transgressors, John 17. As king, he governs his people and defends them against the devil, the world, and the flesh, that they may not be snatched out of his hands, John 10, 28. In one word, he was incarnated that he might be a mediator, and yet there would have been no need of a mediator if there had been no sin. And so Turretin is saying, from the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, and from his identity as the mediator of the covenant of grace, it follows that his threefold office and his work of mediation would not be necessary unless there were sin. The purpose of the incarnation is that Jesus would be a mediator between a sinful people and a holy God. The threefold office of Jesus as incarnate prophet, priest, and king serves the term or end of redemption. And so added to the fact that the Bible sets forth his view, this, his work in light of the fall, so also his office serves that role. Turton adds one more testimony from the church fathers. He says, quote, from the fathers, the fathers frequently confirm this. If the flesh did not need to be saved, the word would by no means have been made flesh. Irenaeus. Another quote, there was no cause for the coming of Christ the Lord except to save sinners, remove diseases, remove wounds. Neither is there cause for medicine. Augustine. Third quote, if Adam had not sinned, there would have been no need for our Redeemer to take on our flesh. Gregory the Great. You see, the logic of the Incarnation as having a redemptive necessity is taught in Scripture, follows from his offices. It's traditional Catholic and confessional theology. It is not necessary to relate the Creator to the creature but the Redeemer to the redeemed. 
And then moving toward a, 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 an exposition of what we're going to look at on these other two propositions, but we're not there yet. Listen to what Turretin says. This is on page 302 now. So Turretin, 299, 299 to 300, and now 302 of the Institutes. Listen to what he says. He says, third proposition, the work of salvation required a God-man. End of quote. Turton states the matter directly in terms of the union of the two distinct natures in the unity of the one person of the mediator. It is not God's relation to sinless creatures that requires the God-man, but God's relation to sinful creatures that requires the God-man. And he says this here, and I, I, I want to amplify from a, a, an, another quote that I think is um, verges on the poetic, especially for Turretin. Listen, he says, the work of redemption could not have been performed except by a God-man. Associating by incarnation the human nature with the divine by an indissoluble bond. For since to redeem us, two things were most especially required. One, the acquisition of salvation and the application of the same. The endurance of death for satisfaction and victory over the same for the enjoyment of life. Our mediator ought to be God-man the Anthropos, to accomplish these things. Man to suffer, God to overcome. Man to receive the punishment we deserved, God to endure and drink it to its dregs. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying, God to apply it to us by overcoming. Man to become ours by the assumption of flesh, God to make us like himself by the bestowal of the Spirit. This, neither a mere man nor God alone could do, for neither could God alone be subject to death, nor could man alone conquer it. Man alone could die for men. God alone could vanquish death. Both natures, therefore, should be associated that in both conjoined, both the highest weakness of humanity might exert itself for suffering and the highest power and majesty of divinity might exert itself for victory. 302 to 303. Please appreciate the first sentence of that rather glorious section. The work of redemption could not be performed except by a God-man joining a human nature to his divine person in an indissoluble bond. The incarnation then has its specific purpose in the securing of salvation by the two estates of Christ in his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. The incarnation is the means to the end of the prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministry of Jesus. And the hypostatic union, the incarnation, serves this end as each nature in the unity of the one person is necessary in order to secure salvation. 
Those two things were necessary. Man to suffer, God to overcome. Man to die, God to vanquish death. Man to acquire salvation by suffering, God to apply it in power. So you see, as you start to probe this more deeply, the two-nature Christology serves the securing of salvation. Each nature is necessary in order for salvation to be both accomplished and in time applied. But I want you to think about this now. Let's, re let's reflect on this for a moment. We've made several lines of, pointment, uh, of argument from, from Turretin following uh, the teaching of Scripture, following the threefold office of Christ as mediator, following the church fathers, and now demonstrating that the two natures are necessary for salvation. But I, we need to reflect on this, and I want you to take time to think through this. Don't let this go by too quickly. The logic of the Incarnation cannot be applied to anything but the Incarnation. It's sui generis. It cannot be applied to the eternal decree, and it cannot be applied to the work of creation without incoherence and heterodoxy resulting. Let me give you a couple of lines of reasoning here. To apply the logic, think about this, to apply the logic of the Incarnation to the decree or the doctrine of creation ex nihilo is incoherent. There is no sense in which God acts according to two natures in the work of creation ex nihilo. Why? Because the two natures, divine and human, are not mutually interdependent and ontologically primordial. Unless you're Bart or some modified version of Hegel. The divine nature is uncreated, it is self-existent, it is simple, it is immutable, it is impassable. The human nature is created, it's dependent, it's composite, it's mutable, it's passable. Thus, there can be no logic of the incarnation applied to the work of creation because God has one and not two natures. I know this is remedial, but in light of recent error, it must be made explicit. There is no created thing that exists in a relation of mutual and primordial interdependence with God. So to apply the logic of incarnation to the work of creation is incoherent. Let me use an example of what happens when you do this. When you use in uh, Nate Shannon's language, amplifying the work of Scott Oliphant, a two-nature theology proper. Let me expound what uh, one problem beyond things I've said in the past emerged. These recent theologians, two-nature theology proper theologians, have argued that God needed to generate or assume created properties in order to relate to the creature so that the relation to creation is governed by the logic of incarnation. 
Incarnation is the interpretive paradigm, the governing lens for the creator-creature relation. Just as Jesus assumed a human nature in the incarnation, God assumed creaturely properties in the work of creation. A two-nature theology proper. But let me state, in addition to what I've said in other contexts, particularly the Common Grace module on anthropomorphism and fearless pantheism, is that such a view is not only heterodox, it's self-defeating and entails an absurd conclusion. Here's the problem. If God needed to assume a set of created, so-called covenantal properties, in order to relate to creation, then God needed a prior set of created properties to relate to those created properties, he would assume. In brief, if God requires created properties in order to relate to creation, this would entail an infinite regress of the assumption of created properties, and no relation to creation can obtain since every step toward creation requires, at the same time, a step back from creation. It would be an infinite regress of covenantal properties. Of course, two-nature theology proper is heterodox, but I think it's also incoherent and entails something absurd. There simply aren't two kinds of attributes in God, essential attributes that are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and then covenantal attributes that are finite, temporal, and changeable. Why? Because creation and incarnation are distinct events. Only in the case of Jesus' incarnation do you find the one who has the attributes of God by nature and takes the attributes of man by assumption. He has the divine and human attributes in the hypostatic union, but we never, ever, as Orthodox Christians, ascribe human attributes to God in the decree from all eternity or the work of creation in time. But in any two-nature theology proper construction, the inconceivable occurs. Created attributes patterned after the humanity of Jesus are ascribed to God himself as his own covenantal attributes in distinction from his essential ones. This view equivocates on human and so-called divine attributes, and the equivocation consists in ascribing human qualities to God as attributes of God. Such a view is as dangerous as it is confused, as it equivocates between relative attributes of God and human attributes. Now, what's the way out of that morass, out of that heterodoxy, and out of that incoherence? It's very simple. Affirm the redemptive necessity of the incarnation and deny all species of two-nature theology proper. First, we must affirm the incarnation serves redemption and not creation. That is the key. The two natures deploy in the salvation of man. God alone saves sinners, 
and what is not assumed is not redeemed. The affirmation of two-nature theology serves redemption, not creation proper. And second, the two natures in the incarnation are divine and human. It's just that simple. God's nature is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those are the attributes of God, God alone, and not man. Those attributes cannot be confounded with human attributes. Man's nature is finite, temporal, and changeable. Such are the attributes of man, and they cannot be confounded with divine attributes ever at any point. Not in the work of the eternal decree, not in the work of creation, not in the incarnation. We ought never to ascribe created or human properties to God and then call them his attributes in theology proper, period. And so as we're thinking about this first point and the way Van Til affirms the absolute necessity of the incarnation given sin, making it a redemptive necessity, not a creational necessity, not an absolute necessity, we start to recognize something that the incarnation is sui generis. It's in a category all by itself. Its logic cannot be applied to the eternal decree or creation. And this affirmation is rooted in the history of a reformed tradition over against medieval speculation, the heresy of Osiander, and the error of Socinians. Those who affirm the absolute necessity of the incarnation to relate God to man are in a speculative medieval or Socinian tradition, not in a classically reformed tradition. And that's the first point that Ventil makes about the nature of the incarnation with reference to its necessity.